Hey, we're dealing with really heavy text. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 23 today, and I want to welcome you if this is your first time. Uh, you come in to the Gospel of Luke on the 62nd week that we've been in this book, so welcome. For the rest of you who've made it through all 62 weeks, congratulations. If we had like little badges that we could give away and little vests that we wore when we completed books of the Bible. We're going to be in Acts next, and I'm really excited about that. We're going to continue Luke's thoughts. Now, I'm going to tell you this uh, chapter and 24 that we'll get into. Matt's preaching next week, so he's going to deal with the heaviest. But we were talking just this week about the crucifixion account because we begin, begin that today. This is the most difficult stuff to preach because everybody is so familiar with it that it uh, even non-Christians are familiar. Yeah, you, Jesus was crucified, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to people. But the, the goal and the task of preaching as such that I mentioned last week is to to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, right? And that's always the task. Um, how do we dig into the text to, to, uh, to bring a new perspective on an age-old truth? And so that's the challenge before us. Um, and so today we're going we're gonna to see Jesus' sentencing when, when Pontius Pilate finally uh, sentenced Jesus to be crucified. He did it so hesitantly. And we're going to see some interesting events as Jesus is heading towards Golgotha. Now, I think it would be helpful for you just to frame this text in history as well, or in reality, I guess I should say, because it's very real. As we read today, you're going to kind of see Jesus. Luke doesn't mention it a whole lot, but he's journeying out of the uh, old Jerusalem. And so he's been sentenced in the middle of the old city there. And he's gonna, he must travel 2,000 feet uh, known as Via Dolorosa or the Sorrowful Way. And much of this scene in the text that we read today took place in city streets that look like this. And so Jesus would have been journeying through these very closed alleyways. And the whole way, just remember, the city had turned against him. And so he's in this closed-in settings, you know, being spit on and thrown at and just, just all kinds of junk happening to him where he would have to carry his cross 2,000 feet from the place of sentencing to Golgotha. Golgotha is this fascinating place, which literally means place of the skull, and it's named that because of this, this little hill that overlooks just outside the city gates. And here's why it's called the skull. I just circled it for you so you can see the skull face in the side of the hill. It's a pretty nasty place. And so when we say the word Calvary or Golgotha, we're talking about the skull. And that's literally what the, the, the mountain was referred, uh, how it was referred and so this almost serves as a reminder as, as the city could, uh, the onlookers could see those who were um, sentenced to crucifixion. Like, don't, you, you want to go against Rome. This was a Roman uh, form of execution. And that's why you notice the religious leaders were so adamant that, that Rome sentenced Jesus. Um, at this time, it's very unlikely, although some debate it, that the Jewish authorities had the authority to execute. But we see that Actually, in Acts, they execute Stephen without Rome. But they wanted, they wanted the Roman execution. And that's important. That not only we have the, feel, the, the darkness, the spiritual darkness of the religious leaders, but what we would say the secular or the worldly darkness of Rome all coming down on the cross. And so this is the setting of the text we read today. And we're going to just read really... Um, what is a firestorm of life? Like what we read in the city streets of Jerusalem is just a microcosm of what the world is experiencing and the chaos that is in our world, the evil at work in our world. Okay. Last week we looked at, look at the church. We looked a lot at the church and I made the statement that it's really hard for church people to be saved. 
And this week, I want to I want to look a little bit outward at the world and what's happening around us. Okay, and we'll do that through the lens of this text and be faithful to it in the midst of it. So let's uh, let's pray, and then we'll read Luke chapter twenty three, beginning in verse thirteen. Father, I begin by asking your Spirit, um, who is truth, uh, to direct our hearts and minds in focus uh, for the next few minutes. Um to speak to us through your living word that is before us, uh, to convict us and to comfort us, to assure us that in the midst of a chaotic world that is seemingly spiraling out of control, that we serve a God who is sovereign, and that we have a responsibility to the chaos. The church cannot escape it or run from it, but we are called to it. So, Lord, just help us deal with really tough realities, uh, the reality of judgment, the reality of hell, the reality of rebellion, but through that all, the reality of redemption in Christ Jesus. And so open our hearts and minds in this hour, Father. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Luke chapter thirteen or 23, beginning in verse 13, says this. It says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time, Pontius said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. And their voices prevailed. And so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? So word of the Lord there. And uh, it's not too particularly exciting. It's chaotic, actually. It's easy to miss kind of when we just look at a piece of paper with words on it, the sights and the smells and the sounds of this type of scene. But it's chaotic, let me assure you. The masses are gathering in a unified format. Luke wants us to be very clear that there is a, there is a concert of condemnation, so to speak. They are unified that this man must die. Even the one who's actually guilty of insurrection and murder must be forgiven in this situation so the innocent man can be killed. 
This is just a microcosm of our world. When I look at this picture and I see the tragedy unfold, really the cross being a, the central point of all history, I really, see, I really see the events around the cross and the scene around the cross as a, just a microcosm of the world's chaos. This is the result of a world who believes it knows what it wants. This is, this is a result of people and wills of their own willpower coming together to condemn an innocent man. This is, this is what you get when people are left to be people. There's a prophet named Billy Joel who in 1989 sang a song based on the great truth that the world was burning. He says this. He's a little off, though. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Billy Joel says, we didn't start the fire. <laughs> He said, it was always burning since the world's been turning. No, we didn't start the fire. No, we didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Birth control, Ho Chi Minh, Richard Nixon, back again. Moonshot, Woodstock, Watergate, punk rock. Ayatollahs in Iran, Russians in Afghanistan, Will of Fortune, Sally Ride, heavy metal, suicide, foreign debts, homeless vets, AIDS crack, right? You get all this? Hypodermics on the shore, China's under martial law, rock and roller, cola wars. I can't take it anymore. We didn't start the fire. How many of y'all in your mind were just going through that like Billy Joe? <laughs> Will you do them a favor, Caroline? Oh, no, what else do I have to say? You haven't heard this song. There you go. So you get your feeling now, Billy Joel. Thank you, Billy Joel. All right. So by the way, I, y'all are not true, but the 845 service, as always, and encourage them, sing louder, sing more often. That's what I'm always encouraging them. Again, this morning, it's like there are 25 cups of coffee behind, and I say this to their faces sometimes, but when I started playing Billy Joel, all of a sudden, I was like, you are alive, 845. It's crazy. Billy Joel wrote that song in 1989, and, and you just literally, you just take out the specific names, all right? So maybe not Reagan, well, Palestine would, would be a fact. Terror on the airline, Ayatollahs in Iran, Russians in Afghanistan, switch a few countries and a few world leaders, and you're in 2022. Same story, different day, different names, different places. Billy Joel is just curating reality. He's just recognizing, and he's like, you know what? I'm going to sing about happy stuff. I mean, Piano Man and all those others, but I'm, I'm just going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to sing about reality in this song. The world's messed up. That's what Billy Joel sees. He's wrong. We did start the fire. It's called Genesis 3. So Billy Joel's wrong there. Billy Joel's also wrong that it's always been burning. Well, I, I would argue it's not been burning. Genesis 3, it's just shortly after. So, so yeah, Billy Joel's not, not, not necessarily theologically accurate, but he sees and feels and knows that there's something spiraling. There is something chaotic, and it is more than just isolated events or policies or countries or nation states or times. This is a perpetual fire, and it seems to continue to grow and grow and grow because the world is messed up. It's not headed in a positive direction. That's kind of, I listened to that song like five times, by the way, during Sermon I was like, man, this is what the world feels, and this is literally how this scene feels. The world is on fire. The disciples have scattered. People Peter has denied. There's a lot happening in this text at this moment, and it feels hopeless. It leaves me at the point I'm asking the question that I imagine the disciples were already asking, do we have purpose? Do we still have a purpose? What is our mission? How do we respond to this overwhelming chaos, this overwhelming reality of evil winning? Right? Does the world still need the church? 
And all of us say, oh, yes, of course it does. But let's, let's just deal with that for a minute before we just kind of give the Sunday school. Yes, amen, it does. What's really going on in the world in the text that is really just, again, a microcosm of the larger narrative? Notice in, in Luke's uh, telling of, this, of these events, he is very, he's very, I don't know, I don't know if he's emphatic, but it is significant how he almost makes the loud voices crying out for Jesus' crucifixion like a, a united front. There's no debate here. The voices prevailed, and finally, man, verse 25, Pilate delivers them over to their will. He delivers Jesus over to the collective will of the people. You want the collective will of the people? Look no further than this passage. You want to see what people can do when they really get together on something? It's been said, imagine what people can do when they're all together on something. Well, they're all together on something can be all together on the wrong things. The collective will of people, they cried out together and Pilate delivers Jesus over to their will. Listen, these are probably men in the midst of their lives who couldn't agree on much. They weren't always the best of friends, I imagine. But if you want to see enemies become allies, give them a common enemy. And that's who they have in Jesus. That's who they have still in Jesus. The collective will of the people is not a hopeful future. Let me just say that again. The collective will of the people is not a hopeful future. It never has been. It never has been. Name one time in human history when we can see a pattern of people's collective wills ending up well. The voice of the majority, the will of the people, it has not. Now, if you say, well, this goes against my American blood. John Adams knew this to be true, too. I paraphrase John Adams when I say, people are kind of stupid. He actually says it more eloquently. Democracy will soon degenerate into anarchy, he says. Such an anarchy that every man will do what is right in his own eyes, and no man's life or property or reputation or liberty will be secure. And every one of these will soon mold itself into a system of subordination of all the moral virtues and intellectual abilities. And he goes on, but... Democracy will soon degenerate into anarchy. Every man will do what is right in his own eyes. They knew it. They knew you can't just say, hey, people, what do you want to do? Why don't you just vote and tell us collectively? I'm not westernizing the text before us. I'm not making this a sermon about America. I'm making it a sermon about humanity. What happens with the collective will of people? We are too easily corrupted. I'll tell you that. We're too, too easily distracted. And we all have shiny object syndrome. What's new? What's next? What's best? That's what happens when you just say, people, what do you want? I don't have a positive view of the collective will of humanity, not because I'm a pessimist, because I believe the Bible. And Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us very clearly that you can't trust the collective will of the people because you can't trust the human heart and its source. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? There are plenty throughout history who would disagree. They're, listen to this. This is so important. What we see at work in this text, we see the people get what they want. We see them fighting for what they want. If we're together in this, we'll get what we want. We'll get right. The collective will of humanity, church, both then and now, is not for us or for you 
It's not for ultimately good. There are people in our history who believe fundamentally would disagree with me and would say that humanity is inherently good if given the right opportunity. That humanity is fundamentally good if given the right opportunity. And you say, oh gosh, this philosophy. Nobody cares about philosophy until they do. Nobody cares about philosophy until they're worried about curriculum getting into public schools. Nobody cares about philosophy until they see marriage redefined. Nobody cares about philosophy until they see their sweet little organized life in a box life interrupted. There's a guy named Rousseau, 18th century dude, awesome name, who believed that humanity was inherently good. He's just an example of one. He says it's humanity who's good. It's economics and politics that are evil. And so to fix the problem, the greatest evil, the greatest social ill is inequality, he says. And if we remove inequality and the few people who promote inequality, life will be better. A guy named Karl Marx really liked Rousseau's writings. At least he was influenced by them. He says, you know what the greatest social ill is? Inequality. So let me just say this, and particularly the temptation to be young and empowered with the new movements, remember that these ideas are rooted in the foundational principle that humanity is inherently good. And if you just fix the inequalities, we'll all be good. This is just an aside, but this is what happens when you leave the truth of Scripture and you believe that humanity in itself can be good. Biblical history shows us that's not possible, left to your own devices. It's not politics or economics or nation states that make us evil. It's the foundation of pride that calls us to build towers to the heavens and crucify the true king. The people didn't know why they wanted Jesus dead, but they knew they wanted him dead. And the leaders here, absolute weak need leaders. Pontius Pilate, I will not do it. I will not do it. I will not do it. Ultimately, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. He fell victim and was crippled by the collective will of the people, as so many leaders often are. This is a, this is a, this is a dangerous reality that we all are tempted by and towards. Like We kind of laughed and scoffed at peer pressure growing up. Like This is grown-up peer pressure. That's what this is. And the leader just, what a weak need leader. You know, a, a leader's job is never just to, like, I, I, at a real local level, a leader's job, by the way, is never just to say, um, what do y'all think? And we'll just do that. Like, a lot of folks want that. It's not to say, I mean, what direction is the public opinion going today? And we'll just do that. It's like, well, like if you're a leader in this church and your first answer is, uh, what do they think we should do? You're not a leader. <laughs> a leader's job is to prophetically point where people ought to go even when they don't know it themselves and to boldly go with them in that direction. And Pilate is just a weak need, give-in politician here. That's what he is. I'll lose control if I don't crucify Jesus. This is our world, though. <laughs> this is like the morning news cycle. 
This is what we have before us, a spiraling world where the collective will of the people is dangerous, it's not good. And the bottom line is, no matter what enemies we see in the world come and go, the ebbs and flows of good leaders and bad leaders, whatever we consider in the world, we need to understand something. We need to understand who they are against. And I don't mean this to sound alarmist or make you scared. That's actually the opposite. We'll talk about that in a minute. But why are they united? Why is the world inherently evil? And what is it ultimately against, even if it doesn't know it? We've already read this this morning. The answer is in Psalm 2. Why are they coming at Jesus? Why are they coming at the gospel, true faith? Why are they, Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? That is the question of Psalm 2, and the rest of the psalm is a response. Why have the kings of the earth set themselves together? The kings are united in this. Kings, fat, cocky kings who want to have all the power themselves actually will unite towards a greater enemy than themselves and their friends or the ones next to them. Who is this greater enemy? The Lord and against his anointed. We've got to get to the point, church. We've lived cuddly, comfortable lives with wonderful freedoms, and we always like lift those up and praise God for them. We've got to understand the world is against the Lord and his anointed. We are the common enemy. The church is the common enemy. And so I see so many churches capitulating in that weak need fashion. Well, we'll just kind of do what makes them happy. What, what kind of language is the world using today? We need to use their language because offense, offense would be the last thing we want to do. The world, and I hate sounding like that because it's just, it's true, but it makes me feel icky. Like the world hates us. And they've always hated us. And so if you're all like, man, trying to get in there and be like, I just want people to like me, they hate you. And Jesus says it himself. They will hate you because of me. I promise you there is some optimism and hope here in a minute. But we've got to see the scene for what it is in the immediate application in 2022 as the church. The psalm is as true then as it is now. And the world is spiraling out of control. The collective will is against Christ. So the consequences are the second piece of this that are to be dealt with. What's the consequence for such rebellion? And we've got to come to terms with this too. Jesus is going in and the women are lamenting and crying. And he says, why are you crying for me? And then he warns them in this oracle. And he uses a reference out of Hosea 10, talking about the mountains and the hills caving in on them because life will be so bad that they'll want the hills to fall in on them. And it'll be, you know, in the Bible, children are, are, are as they are, talked about as a gift from the Lord and a reflection of, uh, of, of her the heritage of the Lord. And we, we know that one day the, the, the image of heaven is that children will play in the streets together with no fear or no worry. But in this, Jesus says, it'd be far better not to have kids. And, and then he says, what is this thing about the wood, the green wood and the dry wood, right? Everyone knows dry wood is what you got to burn if you want to burn a good fire, not build a creosote in your chimney, right? Dry wood is designed, made to burn. Dry wood is given to burn. That's what it's for. And so Jesus is making this statement, this imagery of green wood, and essentially he's speaking very directly. Jesus is saying, uh, in other words, 
If the fires of violence in Jerusalem consume even the most righteous branch, what will happen when the sins of the nation are known and made known? For those who didn't hear that, Jesus is saying, how much more will the dry wood burn than the green wood? Rebellious hearts are made for destruction. Dry wood's made for burning, and so are rebellious hearts, essentially. And if you're crucifying me, if I am experiencing the judgment, how much more harsh will the judgment be for you? And Jesus is looking at those women. He said, don't weep for me. Weep because you failed to align with me when I most needed you. You know, that's how Psalm 2 ends. Psalm 2 is talking about the destruction of the nations, but look at Psalm 2, verse 12. You'll put it up on the screen. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus is saying, weep for yourselves who fail to take refuge in the son. There was an immediate fulfillment of this promise in the year 70 AD when the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem, starved out the city, and decimated any survivors who were left. Buildings were burned. People were burned. The smell of death lingered for weeks. There is another fulfillment of this passage. And my friends, let me tell you, the least popular word in the English language is hell. Jesus speaks very clearly that there is judgment to come. Dry wood is made for burning. Rebellious hearts are made for destruction. And Jesus speaks more of hell than he does of heaven. He speaks of hell more vividly. We know more about it. We understand hell better from scriptures than heaven itself. We sing of heaven far more. And we pretend hell away most often. But Jesus says that hell itself, according to the Gospel of Matthew, between the chapters of 10 and chapter 13, teaches much about hell, saying it is a place of souls of the wicked, a fiery furnace with unquenchable fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of no rest, condemnation, destruction, outer darkness, and according to Paul, separation from God himself. People get what they always thought they wanted. God's justice demands hell. J.I. Packer says the character of God is the guarantee that all wrongs will be righted someday. When the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed, arrives, retribution will be exact, and no problems of cosmic unfairness will remain to haunt us. God is the judge, so justice will be done. I know hell's not comfortable. And I know that we prefer not to talk about it, and it makes us very unpopular with our friends who are not Christian. And that's part of why they hate us. You'll never find me rejoicing about that or amening the concept of hell. You'll never find me getting honestly too impassioned because the weight of even talking about it is more than I can bear. I mean, I wish right now I could move all around like I usually do, but even in these moments, I can feel my chest tighten. That friends and family who we know and love and are some of the nicest, sweetest people we know 
will spend eternity getting what they thought they always wanted, a life free from God. It doesn't end. It's where Lewis was wrong. C.S. Lewis said us. You just get annihilated and then it's over. There is an unnamed rich man in Luke 16 who begged for just a drip of water and begged that someone would just tell his family, change your mind. You don't want to be here. This is the unfortunate reality and the right and just consequence of rebellion. But brothers and sisters, this is not one that we say, and we say that's just the way it is. This is not one that we, we can sit in this room and say, yes, hell is a reality for the majority of the world. We can't just sit here and say that. If we say that and we are unmoved by that, then we do not truly believe such a thing. Because if you believe in the hell that the scriptures present and the hell I believe in, you can simply not sit there and say, that's okay. That's okay for my friends. That's okay for my family. That's okay for those closest to me to go there and never have been warned by me. It's exactly what Jesus does, even in the midst of his uh, 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 beating and uh, in the midst of his procession, scourging, he still proclaims righteousness and judgment don't weep for me weep you're about to experience this judgment that you don't want to experience better for children not to be born this is gonna be bad there's a consequence to the rebellion to the screams to the shouts to the calls for my crucifixion there's a there is a consequence and so we can't just sit here and be unaffected like I've seen so many times, just a good amen and a service about hell and then go home and eat fried chicken. That's not what we can do in light of this. There's a call to countercultural mission. This is when I ask the question, is the church still necessary? What is the church's purpose in the midst of this world that is chaotic and quickly spiraling out of control where the collective will of the people hates us and the reality is that the majority of them will spend an eternity in hell? What is the purpose of the church? What is the call to countercultural mission? We see it right there in the middle. There's two stories, two events, two central themes here in the last little piece. But as I, as I work towards the conclusion here that I want us to go after, what is our response? What is our posture? Immediately when we think that the world is lining up against us, that the enemies are lining up at the gates and they're coming at us with swords, our response is to pull out the swords ourselves, right? We have learned thus far, not a good idea. Multiple times, Jesus has said, put up the dang swords, brothers. Quit fighting. Jesus himself, when mocked, does not fight back to prove his worth. He just keeps following his calling. Submitting to the Father's will. The church's responsibility is not to stand up and beat our chests and cry foul because of our rights. The church's responsibility is to do the same. To show unending compassion and 
countercultural love and submission to other people. Don't weep for me. You know, it's fascinating to the extent to which Jesus went. The cross, I mentioned it earlier, not only the spiritual significance of the Jewish condemnation, but the socio-political, worldly influence of the Romans. The cross was like a well-perfected torture mechanism. (laughs) And they had spent years determining how to effectively cause someone the most pain in the last days of their life. If you really wanted to prove your point and deter criminals from breaking the law, you hung a man on a cross where he could live up for four days until he finally, finally, finally stopped breathing, choking out and drowning on his own blood and fluid. That's what you do. That takes some time to figure out, by the way. You just don't stick across something like this is the best way to kill somebody. You figure it out. You know, the only things, the only thing that we can, that we're perfect at doing is evil. <laughs> It's the only thing we're perfect at making. I mean, here you are putting the Savior of the world not only on a cross, but on a device that in itself is kind of a a picture of human ingenuity. Man, look at look at how look how look how much we can how much uh, um, uh, harm look how much damage we can do to a person over the course of days. That's exactly what we want to do. We we want to master torture. And Jesus still went. Let me just tell you our options right now in light of this. We can do, as I've already alluded to, we can be like so many in the modern church, and I use the term loosely, who just give up and capitulate and say, you know what, we're going to be without the gospel anymore. We're not going to offend. We're going to give up that word hell because it's really offensive and nasty and hot and fiery, and we just don't want to talk about that. And we can completely we can completely just swim in the same stream of culture and say, you know, all those things that are in Scripture are just, are, 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 we could just, we just capitulate, just give in ourselves and our conviction. That's what so many churches are doing. And we say the world's really angry with us and we don't want them to be angry. So we're just going to look like them, think like them, feel like them, be like them. That's an option we have. You have that option. We have that option. And then there's this other side. So often I talk about sides and I find the path is in the way is in the middle, right? And then we have this other side who's just going to hold their fist and kind of close the gates and create a fortress around it and say, we're just going to close our eyes, see no evil, think no evil, hear no evil kind of stuff. We're going to ignore it away. And then there's this way right down the middle, right down the city streets, right in the middle of the chaos where there is this countercultural transformative opportunity incarnational to be the church in the midst of it. Like that's beautiful. Who will be the ones to tell the world? Who will be the ones without the church to tell the world that judgment is a is a sign that redemption is near for those in Christ? That's the beauty of this. Who will be the ones to say that when judgment, when judgment comes, it is a sign that redemption is near for those who align with themselves with Christ? Who will be the ones if the church is not there to not stand up in a fight, but to lay down and die if we must? Who will be the ones to carry the cross of Christ if we just fade into the waves of culture? Like, who's going to do this countercultural crazy stuff that Jesus calls us to do, church? Who's going to do it? Now, here's what I'm just saying to you. You've got to step out of the chaos for a minute and pay attention to what's really going on. 
Don't get caught in the fray of the shouting crowd, the weak need leaders like Pilate. Don't get caught up in the news. Don't get caught up in the craziness and the chaos. And don't tell me it's the worst it's ever been. It's always been bad. It is getting worse. I get that. But just don't get overwhelmed by it. Don't get in the middle of it. Step out of it for a minute. That's what you literally have to do. Step out of the mess for just a minute. Come in from the country. That's the most beautiful picture in this whole story is Simon. Simon's not in the middle of the city. Check this dude out. He's coming in from North Africa. He's just walking up into Jerusalem. All of a sudden, he's carrying the cross of the king. Like, I love that posture. Like, if I think, if I want to give you an image for what we're called to as a church, it's like a Simon posture. It says he just, and they laid him away and seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country. That's not from like the next town over. That's from North Africa. So he's coming into Jerusalem and all of a sudden he comes into this chaos. He's not been in the middle of it. He's not been in the middle of the fray. He just comes in and he's like the most faithful guy in the text outside of Jesus. Like that's Luke 9.23 in this moment, right? <laughs> and like, I just feel that for us. I feel that for us personally, Perkinsville. Like we talk about who we are as a church and our culture and our values and our identity. We talk about being um, uh, a place where we'll send missionaries and church planners. We're going to go for a thousand. That's what we're asking the Lord to do from this mountaintop to like go from the country into the cities across the world, carry the cross of Christ. Like, like, I love this imagery for us to step out of the chaos, to be in this place God's called us to for maybe a year or three years or longer than that. Who knows? But to be the ones who walk into these scenes that are continuing in this world today and to just do the one faithful thing Christ calls us to do, carry the cross. You're not standing up and swinging. You're not standing up and freaking out because you know who's sovereign. You know who's in control. Just to come in from the country. And that's the posture. That's really the, the posture we see most importantly, not of Simon, but of Jesus. But of Jesus. And so I'll just kind of conclude like this. I, I, Billy Joel. If you ask your neighbors and you ask your friends, they're going to feel that song. They're, they're going to say, yeah, the world's burning. They're going to feel it. They, they may not want to say that. You have some friends over to dinner, have your neighbors over to dinner. You talk about what's going on in the world. You're going to get people to a place, very practically, a place where they're going to say, yeah, the world's in a mess. Brothers and sisters, this is an invitation for the gospel. For, for a human heart to acknowledge the reality of the world's place, this is an invitation to follow Jesus. It's very simple. I love Savannah shared this on social media not long ago. I don't know who it's original to, but discipleship is simply this. Go after Jesus and take people with you. The world's condition makes it ripe for the harvest. Take the gospel. Take them hope. Take them Jesus. Because the world still needs the church. Let's pray. Father, in the chaos and the confusion and the calamity and the brokenness that we experience on a daily basis that we often turn on our iPhones in the morning and see pop up on news feeds that scroll across the bottom of screens, it's undeniable that the world is broken and quickly moving further and further into a place of rebellion. And we know this. We also understand that we are wise enough because of your word and your spirit to know that we are the enemy, that the gospel is the enemy. 
but it is still the gospel that saves. It's the gospel that takes men like Paul, Saul of Tarsus, converts them, confronts them, and calls them to change the world in the power of the Spirit. It's the gospel who take men like Peter, who denied Jesus three times just to experience forgiveness and to strengthen the brothers. It's the gospel that people hate, but at the same time when it softens by the glorious work of repentance and regeneration, it's the gospel that makes enemies friends, dead people alive, makes darkness light, and brings life where there was none. So Lord, let us be a church who isn't afraid of the chaos, although it's uncomfortable at times. We recognize it for what it is. A church does not shy away, that does not back away, does not walk away from these kinds of things, but rather we just do the simplest simplest and most beautiful and most profound thing of all, and that is to take the good news of Christ, Savior who willingly went to the cross, Savior who died for us. And so, Lord, let us find our strength, not in circumstances and not in the world, but in our anchor who is the Christ, the sure and steady anchor. Let us find our hope in Him, and let us lift up the name of our King who was crucified for our life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.